This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Environmental, Social, and Governance, ESG. It's been a frequent topic in the news in recent years, never more than in 2021. Funds promise profitable ESG or impact investing strategies. Public companies increasingly disclose climate risk and social topics like ethical supply chain sourcing and the company's stance on social justice issues and governance issues like executive compensation. As investor demand for climate and other ESG information soars, the SEC is responding with an all-agency approach. But ESG is a tricky, sometimes nuanced topic that can be, well, polarizing. So I did what I often do when I need a quick take on thorny or disruptive topics. I turned to Bloomberg's Matt Levine. In 2019, Matt wrote, what I should do is launch the Money Stuff S&P ESG Fund, a mutual fund whose stated mission would be to invest in the 500 companies in the S&P 500 index with the best ESG ratings judged by my proprietary rating system. Don't worry too much about how that system works because it's not particularly important. There are 500 companies in the S&P 500 and 500 slots in my fund, so it doesn't matter how you do on the ratings. Everyone gets in. Why would investors want this? Well, as far as I can tell, investors want two things. One, to be told they're investing in environmentally, socially, and governance conscious companies, and two, to own the S&P 500. My fund addresses both of these concerns in a straightforward way. It has ESG right in the name, and it's the S&P 500. No other fund can promise both advantages. Always tongue-in-cheek and, and usually right, Matt again hits the nail on the head. And on this episode, we're going to explore some of these topics and, and some of the issues around ESG investing and disclosures. And we're very fortunate to have with us an expert and an important policymaker, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, joins us today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Always good to be with you, Chris. As I mentioned up top, we are excited to have Commissioner Purse with us today. She is, of course, a big advocate of innovation in the financial markets. She's a fan favorite at blockchain, cryptocurrency, and fintech conferences, where she is affectionately known as the Crypto Mom. But Commissioner Purse is also deeply interested in and has spoken frequently on ESG topics. And that's what we want to focus on today, because it's an important topic where there are many developments playing out in real time today at the SEC. And we want to explore some of that with Commissioner Purse. And so we're excited to have her on the show. Chris, why don't you do a quick bio in case any of our listeners don't know don't know who Commissioner Purse is. I'm wondering if those Venn diagrams it, overlap yeah. at all. Uh, but Commissioner Purse was appointed by President Donald Trump and sworn in January 11th, 2018. Prior to joining the SEC, Commissioner Purse conducted research on the regulation of financial markets at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. 
She was also a senior counsel on the Senate Banking Committee, where she advised ranking member Richard Shelby and the other members of the committee on securities issues. Commissioner Peirce is an SEC veteran, having previously served as counsel to Commissioner Paul Atkins and as a staff attorney in the SEC's Division of Investment Management. She's also spent some time in private practice at Wilmer Hale and clerked in the Court of Federal Claims. Now, Kurt, I know some of our guests have an esteemed uh, application of being an insecurities podcast guest. I don't know if that helps uh, <laughs> Commissioner Purse's profile at this point with her storied career. But oh, yeah. Commissioner Purse, we're, we're very happy to have you and, and welcome to Insecurities. Well, Chris and Kurt, thank you for having me. And it certainly uh, makes me delighted to be here. I am a fan of your of your show, so it's an honor to be part of it. I have to start, of course, with my standard disclaimer, which is that my views are my own views and not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners, but that usually doesn't come as a surprise. That's right. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. just want to give a little bit of a background here. Kurt did a great job of kind of talking about the ESG landscape uh, up top, but ESG really came about as a development out of the social responsibility investing uh, movements of, of a few decades past. And uh, you know, my standard, Kurt, as you always know, is in the accounting world. ESG really became formalized, uh, from my perspective, in 2011, when the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board came about with a mission to establish and improve specific disclosure standards across financially material ESG topics that facilitate communication between companies and investors about decision-useful information. To me, that reads like an easy task, perfectly clear across the board. But obviously, we've got a lot of issues we'll discuss today. <laughs> so our, our podcast, you know, we talk about ESG uh, a lot and we've touched on it in previous episodes. But here, we're really going to look at two specific kind of frameworks to, to evaluate ESG generally. The first being what public companies should consider in making disclosures around ESG. And then second, you talked a little bit about it with uh, Matt Levine's uh, joking uh, fund, is what does it mean for a fund to have an ESG designation or what also is referred to as impact investing or putting your money behind some of these ESG causes? So I want to pick up on the second point and then talk briefly about some of the things the SEC has been doing uh, to, to rethink or, or perhaps reshape the ESG disclosure framework. Um, but with respect to some of these ESG funds or you know funds that um, that purport to use an ESG investing strategy, you know what they're really trying to do is identify companies that perform well using some ESG metrics and and a lot of times the funds sort of define that uh, or, or don't uh, on their own. But what's really interesting to me is the noticeable uptick in money uh, in AUM flowing into these funds. So a couple quick stats for you, Chris. Uh, according to the U.S. Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investments 2018 report on sustainable, responsible, and impact investing trends, uh, the report comes out every two years, the value of U.S. assets under management that have socially responsible or ESG-related mandates was $12 trillion. And that was up 38% over the figure in 2016. That meant that one in every $4 invested in the U.S. was in a fund or product that purported to use an ESG-related strategy. If we fast forward to 2020, 
the total amount of U.S. assets in an ESG fund was up from $12 trillion to $17.1 trillion. That was another jump up of 42%. And now in the United States, one in every $3 invested is in an ESG type of fund. Uh, so it, it's important. It's certainly something that that the commissioners and, and the staff are going to have to grapple with going forward, but they've been thinking about this stuff for a while. So let's just go quickly through some of the things the SEC has been doing because I think it'll, it'll orient our listeners and help move our conversation along with the commissioner. We sort of go back to 2010, which is when the SEC released some guidance for public companies on their disclosure obligations relating to climate change. At the time, what the SEC was focused on were non-financial statement disclosure requirements that could require, uh, you know, depending on the facts and circumstances, could require a company to disclose climate risks. And those were things under Reg SK, Reg SX, as well as uh, Securities Act Rule 408 and Exchange Act Rule 12B20, which uh, broadly speaking require disclosure of, you know, quote, material information. And I know we're going to unpack materiality a little bit later. Uh, it's it sort of that was the framework for a long time, and I think companies sort of increasingly made disclosures under under the guidance. Um, but we've seen a real wave of interest and conversation around ESG and climate risk disclosure, uh, certainly since 2019, which culminated in December 2020 with recommendations from the SEC's Asset Management Advisory Committee. And what they recommended to the commission was that it should require the adoption of standards by which corporate issuers would disclose material ESG risks, that the SEC should use standard setters frameworks to require disclosure of material ESG risks, and that the SEC should require that material ESG risks be disclosed in a manner consistent with other disclosures. Following on that, there's been an awful lot of activity in 2021 in the ESG space. A lot of that has been sort of uh, shepherded along by the acting chair, Allison Heron Lee. There are sort of five or six big things that have happened. I'll just run through them quickly. Uh, so far this year, the SEC has released an investor bulletin focusing on funds and products that purport to rely on ESG investing strategies. The SEC issued a request for public input from investors, registrants, and other market participants on climate change disclosure. Disclosures. The SEC directed the Division of Corporate Finance to enhance its focus on climate-related disclosure and public company filings. That will include things like looking at whether companies are appropriately addressing the topics in the 2010 guidance and assessing their compliance with disclosure obligations under the federal securities laws. The SEC included in its 2021 exam priorities a greater focus on climate-related risks and Recently, and this is sort of right up our alley, Chris, uh, the SEC has created a 22-member climate and ESG task force in the Division of Enforcement that will develop initiatives to proactively identify ESG-related misconduct. Initially, the task force will focus on material gaps or misstatements in issuers' disclosure of climate risks. The task force will also analyze disclosure and compliance issues relating to investment advisors and funds ESG strategies. So, you know, as I said, there's been an awful lot going on. Hopefully, if uh, if the listeners didn't catch all of that, they're at least paying attention enough to know that this is this is a busy time at the SEC when we think about ESG. The way you describe it, Kurt, it sounds like the commission is moving forward with one mind. Uh, but you know, as with most wonky and fresh issues we explore here on Insecurities, ESG itself is a tough nut to crack because 
of its justifiably polarizing nature that you referenced as well-intentioned and defensible arguments are on both sides of the fence related to ESG. Some, like Acting Chair Lee, believe investors are using ESG-related information to make investment decisions, and those investors would like access to more and more reliable ESG information. Acting Chair Lee and others also believe climate risk and other ESG risks may be material and therefore warrant disclosure on their face. Therefore, this camp believes the SEC should drive toward the adoption of standards by which issuers disclose consistent, comparable, and reliable information about ESG risks. Sounds like a good idea, right? However, the other side of the fence is, is a little different. And Commissioner Roisman believes concepts surrounding ESG are too amorphous and open to multiple interpretations to lead to a meaningful singular disclosure regime. Public companies should rely on the existing materiality-based standard of disclosures that has developed over the past few decades. If the SEC is going to proceed with disclosure requirements or guidance, it first needs to answer some of those foundational or definitional questions and should, perhaps, disentangle the E, S, and G. So sitting commissioners uh, on both sides of the fence feel that this is a, an important issue, right? You referenced the task force being stood up, uh, but I don't think that there is a single mindset in how this is going to be explored going forward uh, from the commission's perspective. Okay, Chris, I think we've laid the groundwork and we've certainly talked more than enough. Uh, I, I know everybody wants to hear Commissioner Purse weigh in on some of these ESG issues. So let's let's get to it. Commissioner Purse, we've noted that on several occasions, you've given speeches on ESG disclosures and ESG investing. I, I particularly like the Scarlet Letters speech. One of the themes, at least as I read them, that runs through your speeches is the idea that ESG is is really broad and it could mean a lot of things to a lot of people. This hints at a definitional concern, but just to orient the listeners, tell us what are your greatest concerns or questions about pushing forward a new ESG disclosure framework? Well, I think you all laid the groundwork really well. And so the definitional concerns are the right place to start. What we've seen in recent years is that people have talked about ESG as one concept when in reality it's many things and it's many things that change over time and change depending on who you're talking to. So I think we're doing a disservice to the debate when we try to just shove everything into one uh, grouping. We should just pull things apart. We can talk about climate. We can talk about other environmental things. We can talk about stock buybacks, whatever, whatever the issues of the day are, the way, the way companies treat their workers, all of those things can be talked about, but they shouldn't be talked about as one thing. What I'm concerned about sort of more broadly is that we are seeming to push away from what materiality is so that in order to shove all of these different issues into disclosure mandates, I think there's a there's pressure to revisit what materiality is. And materiality is, is the cornerstone of our disclosure regime. And I think it's a really important cornerstone of that regime. So materiality is always going to be my touch point. And, I, and I'm concerned that we're moving away from the standard that says, you know, is there a substantial likelihood that a reasonable investor would consider the information important in deciding how to vote or make an investment decision? If not, you know, if it doesn't meet that objective test, then it seems to me that we don't need to create a requirement that it be disclosed. 
the fact that asset managers representing a large amount of assets under management think it would be convenient to have the information is not is not enough. I would note that most ESG reporting that occurs now occurs outside of SEC filings, or at least ESG filing that's labeled as such occurs outside SEC filings, because companies are making the determination that that information isn't material to to an investment decision. I know in Europe, they're, they're maybe being a little bit more honest because they're sort of creating this double materiality approach where you, you look at financial materiality and then you look at sort of ESG materiality. But I don't think that's a good road for us to walk down. I also have concerns about implementation. If you had a very prescriptive ESG framework, I think it would be very difficult to implement again, would run counter to our tradition of a principles-based framework that's that's rooted in materiality. And then I, I think, you know, on the one hand, people are talking about ESG very broadly without without specifics. But on the other, they're very optimistic that you can create this framework that's going to work for every company across every industry, and that it's going to be implementable in a way that disclosures will be comparable across every company. And I, I just, I'm not convinced that that's going to be a very easy objective to achieve. And then I think that we're seeing a lot of pressure in this area for public companies to include more disclosures in their filings. Um, but a lot of that pressure is coming from asset managers who in some ways seem to just want it to be easier for them to do their jobs so that they can get us to do the work for them. But if you want to run an ESG fund, that's totally fine. But if you're in doing so, you're relying on information that's not material. You're going to have to look for other ways to get that information. Finally, I think that that we need to think about what the role of the SEC is and whether this push to include lots of ESG disclosures in public company filings is really an attempt to engage in policy making that does that's not SEC policy making. So social or environmental policy making just it's not our job and it belongs in Congress or if it is to be carried out at, on the regulatory level it should be done by other regulators not by the SEC. Yeah, I think that's an important topic to touch on is the politicization of of ESG. Uh, just generally, you know, we're obviously in an interesting time in our country's history uh, in terms of the division. So knowing that this is a hot button issue for those political machinations is is an interesting touch point. But uh, you know, it sounds like, and, and you described Commissioner Purse, kind of the sea change feeling that has happened in the past few years, whether it's driven by individual investors or, or asset managers. And uh, you know, I, I hearken back to some of the other large structurally evolving events that have happened in our capital markets. I think of the dot-com bubble. I think of the financial crisis of 2008. Are there other milestones in our market's history that, that you can kind of relate to this, this kind of broad change in, in posture related to disclosures? Uh, and if so, how did the SEC deal with that time with some of those other milestones? Well, I think the SEC has resisted efforts to make it into something that it's not. We have a really important mandate, the mandate of protecting investors, facilitating capital formation, and protecting the integrity of our markets is a really crucial mandate for our capital markets in the United States and for the economy more broadly. And so I think in the past, we've we've pushed back as an agency when there have been attempts to change us into something that we're not. Now, 
maybe we've been less successful in recent years. If you think back to Dodd-Frank, there were mandates included in, in that statute that really took us way outside of our areas of expertise, um, conflict minerals, resource extraction. And those mandates have been quite difficult for us to implement. So I think that there's something instructive to be taken from that lesson, that it's that when we do get pushed outside of the area that we're best at, it can be very difficult for us. There was an attempt in the 70s to make the SEC more active, I would say, as an environmental regulator. And that ended up getting pushed pushed back. Ultimately, the, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit held that the NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, only imposed procedural obligations on the commission and didn't mandate the achievement of particular environmental goals. But I think there are people who would have liked it to, to function sort of in a more substantive manner. And, and so we have, you know, historically fallen back on the principles-based regime to say, this is a regime that works no matter what the important issues are and, and issues that our material may change over time. Certainly, that's to be expected. We see issues like LIBOR and Brexit and COVID. Um, those kinds of issues are ones that people designing a disclosure regime couldn't have anticipated. And so we need to have a regime that's going to work no matter what the important issues are. And so I think we should, we should take from this experience a lesson, which is that we really do function best when we, we focus on a regime that's, that's going to last over time and that's not going to be you know necessarily reflecting in in specific mandates whatever the hot issue of the day is and it's not to suggest that these issues aren't important it's just to suggest that our our disclosure regime really works best at getting investors what they need when it when it allows companies the flexibility to give the information so that the investor can see the company through the eyes of management, thinking about the things that management is actually thinking about. I think earlier you described uh, materiality as the cornerstone of the SEC's reporting regime. And, and I think that's sort of coming through uh, all, all of your comments so far today. And it, it's interesting because I think a lot of the debate now is really turning on this concept of materiality, right? What is important to management, as you just said, and what do we think we might expect public companies to disclose or you know what do we want investment advisors to tell us about their strategy it it just comes up again and again this concept of materiality in a way that uh, that we weren't talking about publicly or debating publicly before and, and 2021 has been great for sort of teasing out some wonky securities reg issues <laughs> and, and getting the public to talk about them I mean I, I was really struck uh, during Gary Gensler's nomination hearing by how much of that conversation how many of the senators questions were about materiality and I think he came back to the same point that that you have commissioner and saying listen materiality Materiality is the cornerstone. Materiality is the cornerstone. I'm always going to look back and think about materiality. You and, and some of the other commissioners have noted in speeches and elsewhere that some ESG-related risks, and I, I think certainly climate risk would count among them, could be material and should be disclosed in certain circumstances. I think some of the, the disagreement to the extent it exists is whether we want 
public companies in particular to think about their disclosure obligations in the context of the existing framework, or if we should reshape it, or if we want to think about ESG or look at ESG through a new lens. Um, So tell us a little bit, I think I know where you come down on this, but tell us how you think about materiality in an ESG context. Yeah, I mean, I don't think about it any differently than I think about it in other contexts. I think it's an objective standard that's that's worked well over time, and departing from it would really be detrimental to our disclosure framework in the United States. It can be tempting, right? There are issues that I'm interested in, too, that I would like to have companies disclose and would find interesting, but that isn't the standard by which we have to look at, at disclosure, and that's that's not going to serve investors well over time if you have this shifting materiality standard. I think that if we define it in a way that can change, it really does kind of take the the whole basis for the framework away in a way that will, will really not stand the test of time. So we're seeing, you know, as I mentioned, the Europeans are sort of attempting to layer on a second level of materiality Um, using double materiality. And we've heard talk here in the United States about treating these issues differently so that it brings them to the level of materiality. But I think some of the questions asked at that Senate hearing that you mentioned are really important questions. If you have something that is really quantitatively of very little importance to a company, is that going to be material? I mean, absent very important qualitative factors. I can't imagine that those things would be and should be considered material. But people are not, you know, are now advocating moving away from that objective and adding in sort of, well, if I think it's important, or if a stakeholder group other than investors think it's important, it should somehow get this materiality label. And I really think we need to be more disciplined than that. So I'm going to share uh, a sort of pet theory that that I have on this materiality point and just, you know, we'll get get your reaction. It seems to me that the SEC is is in fact sort of separating the E, the S and the G. And that the E and climate risks in particular are are sort of becoming the test case for disclosure requirements. Um, we're certainly talking about materiality in that in that context more and more, and thinking about whether we want to stick with the existing framework or you know modify or reset it. My suspicion is that if if we can come to an agreement on how to treat the E, that we would later apply that to the S and the G. But you know. There seems to be a lot of chatter about materiality as it relates to climate risk in particular. I mean, is it is it sort of a, a fair take that maybe we're using climate risks to set the bounds and then later S and G are going to come within that framework? Well, maybe. I mean, I would say on the G side, the governance issues that are material, maybe there's less discussion of the G because that's something that that investors have needed to know for a long time because that can have a real effect on the long-term financial value of a company. So I think we should set the G issues aside. And again, because this is an amorphous set of letters and, and, and different things can fall under each of them, perhaps other people put more things into G than I'm thinking of right now. But I think the E and the S are the are the areas where there's been more question about what actually fits within those categories. 
I think that maybe what's done on the E will be taken into account on the S, especially if proponents of moving away from objective materiality are successful on the E side. I can imagine that they will argue for the same thing on the S side. But the S is is probably the most amorphous of the categories. And so I'm not sure that the lessons that people draw from the E will will translate so easily into the S. But we'll see. You could be right about that. I think it's kind of early in this whole discussion and a lot of people are trying to look at the 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 S factors also, but the E is just getting a lot of attention because of the broader interest in in trying to ad- address issues around climate change. Well, I, I will take uh, you could be right as a win. I don't think Chris is going to give me ding, that, ding, ding. that W, but you know, <laughs> I'll take it. One of the things that we're kind of dancing around here is e- concepts of, of policy and preference, right? And that the materiality standards or expectations um, for disclosure shouldn't shift as policy preferences change. And I think you, you touched on this earlier when you said something like securities rulemaking is not an appropriate vehicle for political policymaking. That kind of policymaking is for the folks on the Hill and not the folks at the SEC. There does seem to be a concern on both sides of the aisle that um, imposing ESG disclosure requirements feels like it's becoming less about materiality than it is about advocates uh, sort of imposing their will or their preferences or their moral compass on public companies. You know, that is ESG disclosure could be more about values than value. And you hit on this point in your Scarlet Letter speech in 2019. Commissioner Royceman made a similar point in his 2020 keynote speech at the uh, National Society of Compliance Professionals National Conference. And as Commissioner Royceman put it, some advocates, uh, quote, will try to make ESG an issue of morality or politics, end quote. Tell us a little bit about the concerns you may have about allowing sort of preferences or individual morals to drive the policy. Yeah, I mean, I think our disclosure framework, again, I I sound a little bit like a broken record, but it is important for one purpose, which is to get investors the information they need to assess the long-term value of, of a company. And investors are not all the same, right? They're coming to investing with different values, different interests. Um, but the one thing they share in common, by virtue of the fact that they're investors, is that they're looking for a long-term increase in the value of their investment. So we take that one commonality, and that's what we build our disclosure framework around. Now. If I, as an investor, have particular goals for my investment besides earning money, that's completely fine. But the SEC isn't the right forum. It's not the right regulator to get that information to you. That's something that, you know, for years, companies, investment advisors and others have done the research to figure that kind of thing out. I mean, there have been socially responsible or whatever you want to call them funds around for many years, presumably the investors that are investing in that fund, um, they can go go ahead and and make those assessments. But some of that information is just going to have to come from sources other than public filings. It's important to realize that there's a lot of information out there and we don't have to do everything through our, our securities disclosure framework. I think of turning the SEC's disclosures into this 
enforcer of prevailing views of what's moral or what's green or whatever the issue is that you're interested in. And that's just not, it's not our expertise. It's it's not the best thing for us to be doing. And because we're not as politically accountable as Congress is, those decisions really should be made in, in that forum where there's direct political accountability. You know, we, the commissioners are politically accountable, but it's less direct. And so no one elected us. And so because of that, I really hesitate for us to become social or moral or, you know, enforcers of societal norms. I just don't think that's our role. It reminds me of a cartoon, uh, a political cartoon I saw uh, right after uh, Mr. Gensler's hearing. And in it, there is, you know, presumably a senator sort of staring over the bench at Mr. Gensler. And he says something like, what can you do or can you solve Earth's climate crisis? And and Gensler says, yes, through the power of public disclosures. (laughs) I kind of feel like I think that's what what you're hinting at a little bit. Yeah, that's that's a much more succinct way of of saying what I'm trying to say. Um, And again, it's not that these issues aren't important. But I think we can also remember that I think COVID has been valuable in kind of teaching us that we can't anticipate everything, right? So we need a framework that's that's going to be able to to adjust with the times and with with the challenges of the times. And that means you can't bake this stuff in. And the things that that we all might think are important today may may pale in importance to what's really out there tomorrow. So it's it's both a practical concern of mine and also a concern that we're going to be forced into a role that really is is far outside our expertise. Yeah, and just to play off that COVID-19 reference, uh, Commissioner, I was telling the macabre joke in accounting and legal circles last summer that we're going to see a lot of uh, enforcement actions brought against companies who did not disclose their business risk to a, a pandemic uh, in their most recent 2019 10K, uh, the beginning of last year. And and although that's a little bit uh, you know funny, it's also you know relatively true. And this flexible framework of disclosure needs to be responsive, but also acknowledge some of these uh, you know black swan or other type of uh, systemic events. So could you talk to us a little bit more about how COVID-19 has really influenced your thinking about ESG, whether that's in the E, the S, the G specifically, or just broadly on the framework for how to deal with these broad market issues? Well, I think what it, it's it's reminded me of is that we do need to have a framework that works in all circumstances. I think that COVID has has put a lot of emphasis on Perhaps the S issues because you're you're thinking about worker safety and those kinds of things. But again, those issues were out there already. It's just now we're thinking about it in a, in a very concrete example where there are real concerns that COVID could, if not managed properly in the workplace, could really put workers at risk. And so I think those are the kinds of things that companies in different industries are going to think about differently because a lot of us are working from home. And so it's really not as much of a relevant issue as it is for companies that employ lots of frontline workers. Um, so I think that for me, it's more an illustration that the the material materiality framework has to be flexible enough to accommodate different industries, different companies, and different situations. Since Chris brought up the the concept of enforcement, I'm gonna I'm gonna go there next because I I do think that you know broadly we expect to see some enforcement actions 
in cases uh, alleging failures to sufficiently disclose risks or other things relating to the COVID-19 pandemic. We, we've seen one of those cases, the Cheesecake Factory case at the end of last year, um, where the SEC found the Cheesecake Factory made misleading disclosures about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on its business operations and financial condition. I've heard it described, I think we've probably described it as a, as a signal case or a model for future COVID disclosure cases. But I think it could also be a, a model case for future, say, climate risk disclosure cases. And I wonder if that's the kind of thing or the, that the, the Enforcement Division's new ESG task force will be looking at or the kinds of cases that they might bring. Because I, I have to believe if if they go out and they look around at public companies, they're going to find some public company that has a, an obvious and material climate risk that is not adequately disclosed or not disclosed to their satisfaction. Now, what do you, what do you think? Can, can we glean anything from Cheesecake? Might that be a model for a future climate or other kind of ESG disclosure case? Well, just to start out with, I mean, I think we can always glean something from Cheesecake, but the Cheesecake factory case <laughs> is one that I personally didn't support. And and here's why. That was a very early incident in the history of COVID, right? That was those those disclosure violations happened very early on. And my concern was that when we were bringing that case, although we brought it quite quickly and and I think that's always good, we always need to work on being quicker with our enforcement actions and I think especially in an area like this where it's sort of a new issue and people are thinking about it and so you want to put that out put that marker out there. But I thought that we were really looking through our hindsight glasses at the facts and circumstances in that case. And you know, looking in hindsight, we could say, well, of course, we all knew that the pandemic was going to continue for a long time and that the stresses that were there in early spring were only going to get worse. But I'm not convinced that it was as clear for the people looking at the, that issue at the time how long COVID would last. I mean, even now, there's uncertainty about when we'll be back to normal if we're ever going to be back to normal. But putting aside my personal uh, views on that case, it's hard for me to tell whether this is going to be a model going forward for cases on environmental or climate cases as a result of this task force. I thought it was a little bit strange for us to get this task force going um, with respect to enforcement before we've figured out whether there's a problem. I mean, we could always bring a case based on the, the withholding of material information. And so there's nothing new in our authorities now, right? We we're, These kinds of disclosure cases are pretty routine for the SEC, whether it's dealing with COVID or climate. So I, I was a little puzzled by by why we're, we're creating this special task force for um, climate types of disclosures. And I also think that, that we need to maybe not put the cart before the horse. I mean, if there if there are changes that we're going to make, let's make those regulatory changes and let's do the review of disclosures. Although again, Corp Finn has been reviewing disclosures all along. So it, this, this doesn't appear to be anything particularly new on that front either. But I, I'm struggling a bit because I just I just wasn't really sure what the purpose of this new task force 
was. And so it's a little hard for me to, to anticipate what the cases will be. Yeah, I think we're at an interesting moment here with the ESG debate, uh, with public companies and asset managers, you know, kind of wondering about what they might be responsible for. Uh, and the spectrum is pretty broad. Uh, last year, we saw the real estate company Vornado uh, 8K and ESG report that actually included an examination of management assertions letter signed by Deloitte. Uh, we saw the e-commerce company Etsy delineate corporate social responsibility, CSR, and ESG risk inside of its Form 10K with actually a reference to an auditor's assurance work on those metrics. Uh, and I see that that's, you know, from the accountant's perspective, uh, providing more disclosures is great, but how do we evaluate the appropriateness of those disclosures and, and provide some assurance around the legitimacy and the materiality of those disclosures so that we can avoid any potential omission or, or misstatement? Uh, Commissioner Purse, what what do you think companies should be considering as they look at this ESG-related disclosure uh, framework going forward, as well as how do you think that the audit or accounting function should consider these issues uh, in performing their work on behalf of their clients? In terms of what companies should be thinking about, I think companies should be doing what they've normally done with respect to disclosures, which is is really thinking about what the investor is trying to understand the long-term financial value of the company needs to know and and providing that information and doing so as clearly and timely as 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 possible obviously the the fact that the the SEC has under acting chair lee has put great emphasis on ESG issues is going to be of interest to companies and and it came at a time when a lot of companies were preparing their disclosures were just getting ready to file and so that's that's a bit difficult I think people also need to bear in mind that we're about to get a new chairman. I, it's it's likely that Gensler will be confirmed sometime soon. And if he is confirmed and, and comes on board, he's going to have to think about the entire SEC agenda and, and think about where ESG type issues fit within that and, and how, if at all, he plans to address those issues. I mean, we do have an ongoing request for comment. We've gotten some comments in response to that request for comment, some of which have been very clear that we should be minding our own business and, and not <laughs> drifting into uh, into social and environmental policy issues. But I think any reminder to companies to think about what's material and think about new risks that are emerging can be helpful as, as companies think about making disclosures. A concern that I have that we haven't really talked about that I haven't brought up is that a lot of what is being requested in the climate space is based on models that may not be very translatable to the individual industry level, let alone the individual company level. And so I think that's an issue that companies are really going to have to grapple with. What are they basing their disclosures on? Do they really have confidence in the models that they're basing their disclosures on in the ability to look forward and and predict where their company will be at risk because of changes in climate, for example? Those are really difficult questions. And so I think they should be very careful in in that regard. In terms of Auditors. I mean, I think, you know, uh, Chris, not to be mean to you, but auditors are always looking for an angle to, to, uh, you know, come in and make a little more revenue. And I think this is, this is no different. Um, And so I think that there's, there's a lot of interest in doing the work on, on these new sets of disclosures. But it's important for auditors to remember that this stuff isn't the same as, as 
financial accounting. I mean, we want to have the same kind of precision in the ESG space with respect to those metrics as we have with respect to accounting. But I think one can see from looking at the history of FASB's work that even issues that are really fundamental, such as revenue recognition, are ones that we periodically revisit and we say, wow, we need to take a a fresh look at how we're accounting for revenue or how we're looking at at very basic parts of financial accounting. So don't overpromise in the amount of assurance that you can provide, I, I think is is what I would is what I would tell auditors. I mean, again, I'm happy to hear from everyone. I think these conversations are important to have if there are particular metrics that people think are important for a disclosure mandate. I want to hear from people if people think that my approach to thinking about materiality is wrong. I want to hear that too. But my pushback is always going to be, we have something that works very well for companies and for investors. And so we have to be very careful when we start making adjustments and we start trying to make that existing model do more than it was really intended to do, because we could, in doing that, undermine its ability to do the very thing um, that we've all counted on it to do and has done, it has done so well for so many years. All right. While you're here, we want to have a little bit of fun. Uh, so we're going to transition to our fun segment, which is sort of like a game show. We're going to give you uh, some things to react to or respond to. We're going to focus on some of your speeches or your speech titles, really, because they're always very entertaining, sometimes funny. But first, <laughs> I need to, to ask you to explain something if you're willing. So recently, you were posting on Twitter. And for any of our listeners that don't follow the commissioner, she's a great follow. But recently, you posted on Twitter a picture of an unidentified office placard, and it simply read 10101 mechanical. Twitter, or at least crypto Twitter, went a little bit crazy for a couple of days. Some people were trying to crack the code and figure out what was going on. Uh, People thought 10101 was a reference to room 101 in the Matrix trilogy. Some thought it was the New York City zip code. Uh, some thought it was the binary code for uh, 21, uh, the significance of which was really uncertain. And then there was the usual chatter about Ripple. You later explained what the picture was all about, but I thought this was great. So tell us what, what's going on with 10101 Mechanical. So it was April 1st, and I thought, well, I'll post something lighthearted, which I thought it was just funny that there's this, this sign that has... 10101, which to me looks very digital. And then it has it has under it mechanical. So it seems like whoever did that was kind of making a joke. But I realized that one, I didn't post it in a way that a lot of people could see the mechanical sign. So to the extent anyone would have gotten it, maybe people didn't get it. And as you said, there are a lot of people out there who are trying to read too much into anything that's that's on Twitter. I really was just trying to you know, I read everything in light of my regulator's job. So I, I'm thinking, you know, this just reminds me of how we as regulators are kind of still living with rules written in the mechanical world, yet we have this this digital world that we're having to contend with and it's really challenging for us. And so that's what I think whenever I see that sign, it reminds me of that and it reminds me of the importance of trying to adjust to this new world, which is not always easy for us. 
while sticking, as I to underscore my points from earlier in the podcast, while sticking to the fundamentals of our framework, which have worked so well for so many years. Can you give us any clue on where that sign is, if it's appropriate to talk about? Well, if, if people come visit me, maybe I can show it to them, but people can't come visit me right now. Ominous, ominous. We'll have to follow up on that. Uh, Kurt referenced a lot of your, your speeches, and, and both Kurt and I are big fans of, of your work, as you referenced being a fan of our podcast. Uh, in the last year, you've had uh, speeches with great titles. I'll read a couple of them here. Uh, Paper, Plastic, Peer-to-Peer which was about blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies. And, and of course, as most blockchain-related discussions had, uh, you included a story about Harriet Tubman uh, in that speech, so uh, always connecting the dots that maybe aren't unseen <laughs> to others. We had Rocket Emoji, Atomic Trading Rocket Emoji, which uh, I'm interested in how the SEC press release would represent those emojis. But that, of course, <laughs> was about our kind of January and February view of the meme stock phenomenon in the digital economy. And then also we've had a few uh, Renegade Pandas, Reasonableness Pants, Costumes, Candy, and Compliance, Baby on Board, Lies, and Statistics. I mean, the list goes on and on. One of the things that, that many listeners may not know about Commissioner Purse is her, her penchant for apiculture or for beekeeping. And if you hadn't picked up on this prior, you had a speech, uh, Mochas, Mariners, and Morality, where you told a, a cute little joke about a, a beekeeper, an economist, and a plaintiff who walk into a coffee shop. Uh, and I'll quote your, your reference here. What can I get you? The barista asked the beekeeper. I'll have a latte with honey, replies the beekeeper. Done, says the barista as he serves up a steaming cup of deliciousness. Next, the barista then prepares a mocha with soy milk for the economist. That'll be five seventy-five, ma'am, says the barista. Wait, you didn't even ask me what I wanted, says the economist. Doesn't matter, replies the barista. You can assume it's whatever you want. Finally, the barista next quickly prepares the plaintiff's drink, a large cup of coffee with just enough coffee to cover the bottom of the cup. What happened to the rest? Demands the angry plaintiff. Sorry, man. The class action lawyers already drank the rest of it. <laughs> and that's it's a great reference to, to beekeeping. And, and we know you're a big fan. I don't know if you recall, Commissioner Purse, that we had a great episode on the PCAOB where we actually referenced the very famous Dr. Seuss's book, Did I Ever Tell You How Lucky You Are?, which featured a... <laughs> set of beekeepers each watching each other to make sure that a watched beekeeper will watch a harder working bee in a subsequent uh, reference to who's watching the watchers. But if you haven't caught that episode, definitely listen to it. I'm very proud of our production staff for getting some. I did. I did hear that. Episode. Excellent. So you, you know about our, our bee sound effects that we got to work in there. And I understand that you've got a, a little beekeeping reference you want to share with us today. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I have to, to uh, work this in given Kurt's love of, of reg bi yes. we almost made it through the episode yes. uh, sorry we couldn't so so the reason that i care so much about beekeeping is kind of runs in the family and my my grandfather had beehives and one day the beehive inspector rode up and looked at my grandfather's beehives and promptly lit them on fire and my grandfather asked him why he did that and he said well because you committed a reg beehive violation <laughs> Womp, womp. No, I love it. That's that's Reg Beehive with teeth. That's what we've been waiting for. <laughs> God. Uh, How do I sign off for this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. Awesome. Great. Great joke. Thank you. 
today we we you know Kurt and I want to kind of feel a little bit more connected to some of your development processes on the speech side and give you a few speech titles and potential topics related to Kurt and I often talk about popular culture here but some of our favorite songs related to the financial market so we'll just do a quick read of, of the titles and, and the related songs and Commissioner Purse you can kind of tell us if that's something that might be on the docket for a future speech for you or if we're really off the mark in our musical references <laughs> yeah feel free to steal these they're, they're... Well, this, this would be great i do i will steal probably from your, from your list you got so it let's see what it is first all right so we'll kick off with a timeless classic from the rolling stones time is on my side and we've got kind of two topics for you here either spy with retail in mind or time is on my side qqq is right for you what do you think? I, I, I'll, I'll add that to the potential list. Excellent. That's a play the play the winning sound effect there. Ding ding ding. Oh, I love. It. They're going to get better. I promise. Uh, all right. So, <laughs> next next up, uh, the Kenny Rogers classic, The Gambler. So here's the speech title. Tell us if you like it. The Gambler. Be careful chasing diamond hands. Okay, I have to tell you that. This is kind of funny because I actually did have The Gambler, Kenny Rogers, The Gambler, in something that I wrote in a, it was in a dissent, an enforcement dissent. Wow. And my staff made me take it out. Oh. I was so excited about it because, and, and I spent like four hours just listening to The Gambler over and over and over again as I was working on the dissent as my inspiration and so ripping it out of there was difficult, but uh, so that definitely could show up sometime. Yeah, you you got to know when to fold them, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. Next up, the 1980s classic from Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. What's with the mutual fund and 529 plan enforcement sweeps? Good speech or not good speech? <laughs> I like it. Excellent. <laughs> Doing well here. Uh, yeah, I think so far, well, you know, one of these might break through. All right, next, um, you know, we're going to go with some 90s hip hop here. Wu-Tang Clan Cream. Uh, so that is cash rules everything around me. Rethinking the T plus two settlement cycle. Well, I think it's a bit of a stretch on the connection, but I'll have to think about it. Now, I do not do anything that has bad words in it. So I don't know if that song has bad words in it. I feel like that's definitely... <laughs> yeah, so we'll have to think of a different way to reference the, the T plus two debate. <laughs> a little bit cleaner hip hop version. Uh, more recently, the artist Macklemore came out with a song called Thrift Shop, which was quite popular a few years back. So regards to that song, the title of speech being Thrift Shop, is value investing dead in a meme stock market? <laughs> This is great. I might have to fire my staff and hire you guys. <laughs> just for just for speech titles. I don't know if that's a valuable oh, use man. of the commission's funds, but uh, we're happy probably, to help. Probably not. Yeah. All right. We've got we've got one more for you, and uh, admittedly, this one is my favorite. <laughs> so here we go. We are uh, we're leaning on the Marvin Gaye classic, uh, "Mercy, Mercy Me," and the speech title is "Mercy, Mercy Me." Risk disclosures aren't what they used to be. I like that. That's a nice classic. I like it. <laughs> well, I'm I, I'm very shocked, Kurt, with how well uh, how well we did. Even referencing a gambler uh, discussion that got pulled out of that. a previous paper. So, and I love it. 
Commissioner, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the program. Um, we've really enjoyed having you and just love how how candid you are. I mean, sort of openly discussing these uh, these difficult issues and making it accessible to folks so they can sort of understand what's going on at the commission and how you're thinking about it. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And, and again, I really enjoy your show. And I think you make issues that might otherwise not be not be something I'd want to listen to on a Friday night. I'm always excited to turn on your podcast. High praise. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Commissioner Hester Peirce. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.